Good evening and welcome to Phenomena Gaming, the podcast about gaming and living. And today we're going to be talking about Tactics Ogre, which is a unique game for the PSP, which has been the precursor for a number of tactics-based games, including Final Fantasy Tactics. I am your host, Adam Fitzpatrick, um, the founder of Phenomena Gaming, and we also have Parker Cook, who will be interviewing and discussing Tactics Ogre with us today. So, Parker, if you want to introduce yourself here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, my name is, uh, as Adam, you said, Parker Cook. You can call me Dr. Hamilton Cook, too. I got my PhD. I worked so hard on it, I have to show it off here. Uh, I'm just kidding, of course. Um, I have been a lifelong gamer. I'm really uh, fascinated and intrigued by RPGs in particular, and I've been a longtime fan of the Tactics Ogre series. Or Ogre Battle series, I, I think that's really what it should be called. The fir- I think really the first RPG that I was exposed to on my own, and I played on my own, was Ogre Battle 64, Person of Lordly Caliber. It's like the weirdest title ever. Um, and I've been playing Tactics Ogre, so the, the official title is Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together for the PSP. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can go into a little bit about the history of the game, but... Uh, I started playing, interestingly enough, when I was doing uh, language immersion in Turkey in 2015. I lived in a, like lived with a host family. I'm an introvert. Most Turks really... I mean, that's not fair. Turkish culture is really extroverted. You're yeah. always with family. You're, you're, you have kind of your support group. And I need time alone. So I would lock myself in my room and I'd be like, I'm sick. Or I'm doing this. Or I'm doing homework. And really, I'd be playing Tactics Ogre on an emulator for SNES. Like one of for the um, original Super Famicom um, translation or fan translation, so I've been a longtime fan. I never beat it on emulator, and so this year during COVID and with the new job that afforded me the cash to do it, um, I bought a PSP and I bought um, the full version Tactics Ogre. Let us cling together, um, and I've grown to really, really love this game. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Great. And for our listeners out there, this is a Patreon-produced segment, so if you subscribe at the $10 tier, you can also guest host on the podcast with me, where we talk about gaming and living. That's right. Um, And part of that, we're going to be talking about the morality of war and how we make those hard decisions in our lives. And so what struck me when I was reading some of the preview material you sent over for Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, is really looking at this is a retrospective view from a Japanese developer looking at the Yugoslavian civil war in part. Yeah. I have to want to problematize that narrative too later because not necessarily that it's wrong, but I feel like most, most gaming like media that I've encountered that discuss tactics ogre, they really harp on that and focus that. Um, I, I was a specialist in uh, the Ottoman empire and religion and religion and politics in the Ottoman empire so I'm not particularly like a Balkan studies expert, but I do know a bit about um, the Yugoslav civil war, about conflict in the Balkans and sort of the, the catalysts that led to the creation of modern nation states, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think that Matsuno, uh, the director of this, did take a lot of inspiration from the uh, what was going on in the early 90s with the breakup of former Yugoslavia. But he takes it a bit further and he actually uses kind of his own knowledge of history overall. I've, he- I've heard like Final Fantasy Tactics compared to the War of the Roses, and I think that's a really excellent comparison. But there's something more going on there. He almost abstracts uh, our understanding of history and these big themes that we grapple with as human beings, um, and he kind of infuses his game with it. But you're right. right. He was watching, in, in interviews, he brings up that he was watching the news and being like, oh, okay, um, Slobodan Milosevic, X and Y, you know, um, Sebrenica, you know, so tell me a little bit about ya- ya- Yaumi Matsuno because he he's the director of this game. That's correct. Um, what role is he? What role is he played in your own reflection on this series? But also, like how? I, and just what do you think of him? What do you think sure. of him in general? Um, I uh, I want to preface by saying I'm my um, uh, how do I put it. My approach to doing the research for this game isn't as detailed as, as perhaps um, two other resources I want to recommend listeners to. The first is Watch Out for Fireballs, which is a great podcast. Um, they actually do a playthrough of the game, and they do a really detailed, like, year by year, this is this is what was going on, um, this is how the game works. The, they focus on the gameplay a lot, and they do a lot of comparison to other 
games. Um, and so I really recommend that to listeners. And then also, I think it's Hardcore Gaming 101, which is an awesome title. It's a website. Uh, has a written overview of Tactics Ogre and why you should love it. Um, and I agree with both of those things and think they're awesome. So check that out. But uh, Matsuno is kind of my man because he, from my understanding, he got a international studies degree and he was really interested in history. Um, I myself have what could be called like an international studies degree um, or several. Um, and I was why well, I wanted to be a historian and a professor. And now I am an alt act as they call it. Um, because I want to make more money to play games rather than spend 80 hours just writing um, academic works. But uh, <laughs> that's just me and my own personality. But um, so Matsuno, someone who had a finger on the pulse of world politics and had a knowledge of history, uh, kind of like great man history, if you want to call it like that, but the history of conflicts in particular, it sounds like. And all of his games are reflections, I think, of his understandings. And that's why they really always spoke to me because I'd be... I'd be reading like Froissart's Chronicles when I was in seventh grade and the history of the Hundred Years' War, and then I'd be playing Tactics or uh, Ogre Battle '64, Person of Lordly Caliber, and the two like stimulated this love of history and the philosophical things we deal with in terms of how do we produce a better world and deal with conflict, and um, so that's that's why I think like I've been drawn to his games. Um, your seventh grade reading material is much more advanced than anything <laughs> I would have ever considered reading in seventh I mean, grade. I, but was, I was a hyper nerd and still am. What can I say? Yeah. But um, I mean, I am too, but not in that particular specialty. So I do appre- I do appreciate that historical perspective. So, so. The, the the more critical listener will be able to correct me on all of these dates. But so the little research that I have done is that Matsuno really got cut his teeth um, with the like the Ogre Battle series, the first Ogre Battle, which is Ogre Battle March of the Black Queen, which came out for the for SNES in the early 90s, before 1995, because we know that in 1995 was Tactics Ogre, mm-hmm. um, the game we're talking about today. Yep. Um, that was a that was also inspired by his uh, research into the uh, breakup of former Yugoslavia. Um, after that game, which I, I understand was really impactful in creating kind of the, the sort of tactical RPG or the SNS RPG, yep. um, strategic RPG or, or strategy RPG, um, he moved on to, to, I think, really have greater control and kind of express his vision more in Tactics Ogre. Um, beyond that, he was uh, a lead in Final Fantasy Tactics, which is like, I think, his most celebrated work. He did Vagrant Story. Which I had a chance to play. I need to play it again because I rage quit. But that's my own like problems with gaming, maybe. <laughs> Just because I'm used to playing easier games. And when you're stressed out because we're living in a pandemic and job stuff and everything else. And, um, you know, playing a game like Vagrant Story sometimes isn't the best mental health choice. Um, he also played a part in Final Fantasy XII. Which is my, you know, is probably, you can guess it, my favorite Final Fantasy. Um, so that's that's kind of... That's his track record. Um, I've loved, you know, I'm a big fan of SRPGs in general, like the Fire Emblem series, Vanguard Bandits, if anyone remembers that super obscure game, uh, Banner Saga, Valkyria Chronicles, Disgaea, these types of games that yep. I always really enjoyed. So Tactics Ogre speaks to me and my own personality. Great. So when we're thinking about Tactics Ogre, so tell us, a, I want to give like a little brief on like how the basic flow of gameplay works for our, for our listeners for, for for somebody that's not heard of a game that was made in 1995 <laughs> and for people that it might seem like oh if i look it up and it looks like just like grid stuff so what's Weird going sprites, on yeah. yeah so what's going on with the gameplay and tactics over and i'll i'll clarify too in saying um so i played this game oh, I, I mentioned this sort of history right playing on an emulator and then playing on the psp now um it came out for Super Famicom in 1995. In 1997, it came out for Sega. Um, and then the PSP remake, which is a really substantial remake in terms of graphics, localization. They added new parts to the story, new weapons, you know, uh, new classes beyond all of that in 2011. So it is a pretty old game. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be great if they remade it again. But um, to answer your question directly, Tactics Ogre is a, uh, it's a tactical RPG. And what that means is that you have a story told through cutscenes and told through and I brought my PSP to show you we can like do an interactive thing um, uh, also told through like reports there's a character that follows you around named Warren and he has reports on every character that's like a summary mm-hmm. so it's as if you're reading like some gigantic novel 
And then you go to the back and have an encyclopedia of all the names that are discussed. If anyone reads fantasy literature, that's kind of common. Yeah. Like reading Dune, for example, Frank Herbert's Dune. People are like, oh, what's the, you know, Muad'Dib or something like that. And they'll go back and they'll look at the encyclopedia. Oh, okay. But that um, the note part of the game and tells the story or in part tells the story is always updated with things that happen as the story progresses. But the game, so that's like a big part is the cutscenes and this this like side narration, but mainly it's told through battles. Mm-hmm. So you have battles or encounters in which you pick uh, characters individually to go into battle, and everything is played out on a grid. Um, it isn't quite like isometric, but it's pretty close. Um, I've heard it described that way, and you uh, you know level up characters, design their classes pick their weapons, pick their specialities, and uh, play like that. It's very much, if people are familiar with Final Fantasy Tactics, and I imagine that's the probably the thing with which people are most familiar, it's very similar to that. Yep. Some say this is the precursor to that game. So. Yep. All right, so... Let's get let's get into the actual themes of the themes of the game now, which is what we talk about here on the Phenomenon Gaming Podcast. So we've got a de- we got a creative director yes. that is influenced by history and influenced by the Yugoslav Civil War. So give us a little bit of the comparisons about how the Yugoslav civil war plays into tactics ogre, but then also like give me the general flow of history sure. as we're, as we're looking at conflict and what happens over the course of the plot of the game. There will be some spoilers in, in this section. I'll keep it. I'm, I've kept the spoilers at a very, very base minimum. Great. Uh, Cause I really want people to play this game. Although I, I recognize it isn't inaccessible. I would say play it on an emulator if you you know don't want to do what I did, get a PSP. Yep. Also, as Adam can see, I got a tiny PSP, so that's probably what's been giving me headaches. Oh. Should, I should have gotten a Vita, but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> It's all good. Um, uh, I think that Matsuno's, Matsuno drew on the Yugoslav Civil War as it was being presented by the media. That's my understanding. Because if he were to do a one-to-one comparison, I think the game's narrative would have been even more complex. Mm-hmm. So the Balkans is inhabited by many different ethno-religious peoples. Um, and I could go on and list all the different ethno-religious peoples, but I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that um, you have groups of people that speak a completely different language than others. You have people who are separated by religion. So this is most notably with the, the continuum of Serbo-Croat Bosnian languages. If you speak to anybody who speaks these languages from the outside, who wasn't like, you know, wasn't raised in Serbia or raised in Bosnia, um, they will tell you, as they've told me, I've met with experts, like these languages are the same except for spelling. Uh, so some, you, like Serbian uses the Cyrillic alphabet, Croatian uses the Latin alphabet, Bosnian uses the Latin alphabet, but it used to be written in Arabic. <laughs> oh, that's... But it's the same language by and large, right? So that like the grammatical bones of this language are the same. The vocabulary can change. Bosnian, I think, from my understanding, again, not an expert, so don't come after me, Serbian nationalists. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Bosnian has probably the most divergence in terms of uh, vocabulary, given the Islamic influence. Um, but you're working with like a group of people that are we- strangely othered in that way. And there's different kingdoms throughout history. You had different dukedoms and kingdoms and empires claimed by one group over another but by and large you're working with people who are very much similar mm-hmm. linguistically speaking yeah um and i think that really that's something that metsuno really harped on in his game so to give listeners an understanding of what's going on in uh the game itself so the game itself it's set in an island called valeria and valeria for metsuno is like Yugoslavia or the Balkans. Yugoslavia was formed after uh, the creation of a communist state by a leader named Joseph Tito. Um, and if I'm getting any of these wrong, it's because I'm more of an expert on Ottoman history and not 20th century history. Um, and that state persisted throughout the 20th century as this bastion of a kind of different kind of, of communism to that of the Soviet Union, but something that was aligned with the Soviet Union. And by and large, it it gave credence to one ethnic group over the others, which was the Serbs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And as this leader passed away, um, 
there became his rule was kind of the linchpin that held everything together. And as he passed away, there was movements within all the other different groups that were grouped together into this artificial state to, you know, nationalize and separate and adopt something, you know, adopt different cultural, not cultural, adopt uh, different economic structures and governmental structures and so on and so forth. And that sparked the Yugoslav Civil War. Very, like, you know, spark note summary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something else that we see at play in Matsuno's work. So Valeria, I've already made the comparison, is like the Balkans, you know, southwestern Balkans. Um, it's comprised of three main ethnic groups. The Galgastani, the Wallister, and the Bakram. Um, and of course I'm affecting like an Ottoman style <laughs> pronunciation of those, but that's my style. I wouldn't say that there's like a one-to-one comparison, but I think he focused on the Serbo-Croat Bosnian language continuum to describe all three. So when we play the game, when there's an interaction between these three ethnic groups that inhabit the island of Valeria, they don't speak in other languages. There isn't a translation. They all speak in this really refined Shakespearean English, which I love. It's great. Um, And they all have the same religion, which is interesting. They all seem to worship like the pantheon of gods that's in all of the Ogre Battle games. Like I've encountered in Ogre Battle 64 and beyond. So you're really dealing with this almost paradoxical thing where you have people who are different, different ethnicities, but there's no major distinction. So for example, the Wallister aren't like, they don't have like a racial distinction. They aren't a different skin tone, right? There's no religious distinction. They're not speaking a linguistic distinction. And so my guess is Matsuno in reading the news and maybe doing a bit more research was like, okay, wow, most of the people in Yugoslavia like understand each other and speak very similar languages, if not equal lang- like the same languages, but they still manage to create a sense of other. Now the Galgastani are about 60 to 70% of all people on Valeria. Mm-hmm. 20% are the Wallister and they ha- inhabit the South Southeast. The Bakram, the remaining 10% are the elite ruling class that have ruled over the nation um, and established kind of the ruling class by which you can't have any other kind of polity. So the story goes, there's a king, uh, Dorguala, I believe it's pronounced. I'm probably butchering that. Um, uh, and the, the localizations have changed too, by the way. So the SNES version has different names for different people. And so... That's, so you're using the PSP tactics. That's for, correct, okay. from 2011. Yep. yep. Um, king Dorguala uh, establishes a kind of peace and he brings all three ethnic groups into a kind of political agreement that there wouldn't be any infighting. And so his reign is really celebrated. Um, he's almost like a Tito figure, I would say, insofar as like he's like above the racial ethnic divide of Valeria, and yet he still is a member of one of the classes. It's not which, which one is not coming to mind. He might have been a Bakram person. I'm not certain. Mm-hmm. Um, but even despite that, there was you know him ushering in this golden age and he builds this big hanging gardens palace and everyone really celebrates his reign. Uh, he passes away without an heir. And so what happens is, is that there's this big breakup. So the Bakram say that we're really in control. And then the Galgastani are like, but we're the majority. And then the Wallister are like, we need independence. We're your slaves. We're like seen as second class citizens. And it all erupts into this huge, chaotic, violent mess. And that's where we are in the game. The protagonist is a young man by the name of Denim Pavel and his sister, Kachua Pavel, and their friend, Vice, and I'm forgetting Vice's uh, last name. And some people have made the comparison between Denim and Vice to Ramza and Ramza's companion. Delita. Delita, yep, exactly, in Final Fantasy Tactics, which I really need to replay to. Now that I have this nice PSP, I can get War of the Lions, hooray. Um, but all three of them are Wallister youth on the island of Goliath in the southeastern part of this region. And they witness the massacre of their town. And there's like, that's where the game starts. It's in media race of this war where you see these knights come in this like really great sprite uh, illustrated scene. And they like, you see the massacre happen of their, of their town, of the island. Um, the war ravages throughout all of of Valeria, and they decide to do something about it after several years. Their father has been kidnapped, um, uh, Denim and Kachua's father, who was a like a high-ranking member of the church and a political authority. And the game starts with them plotting an assassination to get back at these invaders. 
One thing I should add, and this is a little bit different from the context of meditating on the Yugoslav, the breakup of former Yugoslavia or the Yugoslav Wars, for lack of a better term. Um, throughout the Ogre Battle games or series, there's this persistent presence from the Kingdom of Lotus, L-O-D-I-S, not Lotus, like the flower um, or plant. Uh, Lotus runs the church and they have an a order of holy knights that they send to do their bidding. And there's some games that feature Lotus a little bit more prominently, like Ogre Battle 64. And there's some that were in which they play a different role. In the context of Valeria and Tactics Ogre, they they have a vested interest, and I won't give any spoilers, in being present on the island and manipulating politics to their favor. You find that out much later in the game, and it's a big, big part of the plot. Um, and you find that there's really a subplot underneath the political machinations of everything. The only kind of comparison I can draw to history is perhaps the interests of the United States and the Soviet Union in supporting various groups. I guess by then it was like the former Soviet Union, but like Russia, um, in supporting uh, factions within um, the Yugoslav Civil War. Uh, you can think of much later, like you know, close to 150, 200 years later, earlier, um, of the Ottoman Empire which ruled over all many Balkan polities and the split between split of the Balkans between the Venetians on the coast, the Habsburgs closer to Austria, more so Croatia, um, and the Ottomans and their incursions. And um, a lasting leg of, legacy of this is the conversion of, of Bosnian folks to Islam, you know, in comparison to Serbs who remained Orthodox and Croats who were Roman Catholic. Um, Lotus seems to play that role, but it's only one external power. And these knights are brought in to do the dirty work of the Bakram in particular. And so they're, they're, they're kind of the elite force that you don't want to have involved because you know that they will be able to win any battle you have them involved with. Um, I'd say that's kind of a good introduction. Okay. Without really like, spoiling it, there's one little thing I could spoil, but I'm not going to. Yeah, no, that's that's oh. that that that's perfect because I think I think for especially like the beginning part of a segment like this is that we really have to be thinking about just what is the introduction to get people involved with the game. Yeah, and then and then we kind of like tease in like okay, here's some more story beat pieces that you have to think about, and I think what I'm interested in in this game is really thinking about. How does the game story divide out? Like as mm. you as you play for it. So how do you when you play the game, you go through a, through a path. Your decisions matter in a tactics in a tactics yeah. RPG normally. So tell us a little bit about how the choices you make matter over the context of the game, and then how that flows into some of the later beats of the story. I mean that that is the question with this game. I think what attracts this game to people when they read reviews is that choices are really substantial um it isn't simply just like you know recruiting one character versus another it's really like you know the limited little text box you have can change the next 40 hours you have with the game mm -hmm. and i've logged a lot of hours in this game already and i haven't even scratched the surface and it's one of the things you you know it's it's designed to be replayed and in the 2011 version they've made it so that replayability is the norm it's encouraged it's almost like, you know, I, I we've been speaking about you playing through Nier Automata and it's designed to be replayed, like one ending isn't enough. Okay. I just replay I just played a Nier Replicant or Nier, the original Nier, and that one is like you won't have the complete story unless you replay it. And I feel like it was the decision of this game to do so. But really directly, when you play through what's called the the beginning, the first chapter, Denim and Company uh, take up the service of the Duke of Wallister. This isn't too much of a spoiler. Yeah. And you uh, lead his forces to uh, try to build independence for the Wallister people in southeastern Valeria. Mm. And the first chapter, is it's kind of an introduction, It's but it's a little more than that because you actually can get kind of involved in the battles. There's one epic battle that's very difficult to beat. And so you're, you're playing along and you're like, oh, everything's introductory. And like, okay, this is how I do a back attack. And oh, this is how I use items. And oh, magic works this way. And like TP points work this way, like technical points. Um, and then you come to this battle and you're just annihilated. 
and you have to restart and restart for like when I remember I played the first time in, in Turkey 2015. I'm like, what? Is this like some glitch or like this horribly created game? Like what's wrong with you? And um, it's designed that way, I feel, that there's a real heaviness to the combat. Um, and that like your choices in engaging in these battles really do matter, which is interesting. But, um, and I'm a meanderer type of talker, so uh, I always am self-critical when I listen to myself, but it doesn't necessarily affect readers. That being said, with the as Denim progresses in the story, he's tasked with a really difficult mission. Um, in the town of Balma Musa, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but you'll encounter it anyway because it's the internet. Yep. Uh, there is a group of Wallister. There, it's not clear if they're POWs, if they're workers, or if they're in an internment camp. And that's something that very much speaks to our exposure to the Yugoslav conflict. We think of the Bosnian genocide. We think about ethnic cleansing on all sides. We think about um, the use of like village erasure to try to get people to to motivate them to attack and join a revolution or join a nationalist uprising, so on and so forth. And uh, Denim is tasked to go to this place with a you know a wagon train of armament and to arm these citizens, close to five thousand people. Um, and inspire them to fight for Wallister freedom. And without going too deep into the spoilers, you can basically choose to uh, listen to the demands of the people or to kill the people. Because you're tasked by the Duke, uh, Duke Ronway, if they do not decide to join up in the resistance... Because it's assumed, all right, so they're Wallister people under the yoke of the Galgastani and Bakram. Of course they'd want to join in the revolution and fight. Um, they have they have revolutionary fervor like everybody else. But if if by chance they don't, which is like a really big if by chance they don't, it's probably not going to happen, then dress them up as Galgastani soldiers, kill them, and claim it was a massacre, which will incite everybody to rebellion. And uh, as you go there, you find that the people are not so willing to join up in the revolution so willy-nilly. And that conflict isn't as... I mean, I think... And this is a huge other podcast, obviously, but like conflict that we encounter in games and we really take an objective perspective and we can kind of role, literally role-play out solving conflict. How do, we, how do we feel when we're in conflict with people? Um, what does conflict look like? Broad-scale versus small-scale? I mean, it's... It's a really different turn in gaming to just have something go off that way, if I'm making sense. Right. You would just assume the narrative's like, everybody's for the revolution and we're going to push forward. And that's how Ogre Battle 64 plays. Uh, but in Tactics Ogre, you encounter these refugees and are these these people, uh, Wallister folks that don't want to join up in the revolution. And your choice there determines the rest of the game. So you'll split off into either a law path a chaos uh, path or a neutral path and the chaos the neutral path spawns out of the chaos path in chapter two to lead to chapter three and there's four chapters the chaos path and the law path really interestingly converge and come back together for the fourth chapter and then neutral i think ends in the third chapter i haven't played yet so i'm going to play it that's the next playthrough is going to be neutral and then chaos and then finally the epilogue at least i think um but that choice is huge. And then the choices that follow are reflective of that major choice that you made. And when I first played through the chaos choice, um, I went with my gut. Like, this is what I would do in that situation. And I found that the chaos story was the least interesting to me and the most difficult to play game-wise. Mm-hmm. You aren't given special characters. A lot of the recruitable uh, people of this island and beyond aren't available to you. So it isn't as interesting that way. I felt I had to do more work, like building up my team, and then like I misbuilt up my team, so I had to restart. Um, and it was really interesting to have that happen versus the law route, which I just played through. I made a different choice at Balma Musa, and the game played like a charm, as it were. Like it was, I mean, it was difficult at some points, but with the proper planning and grinding. Unfortunately, you have to do a lot of grinding, and there's a mod that's come out to help with the grinding and rebalance the combat. I haven't had a chance to play it, but I've heard it's excellent. Um, you know, with the work put into it, it was uh, a difficult but satisfying RPG. But yeah. you wonder, like, well, what what is the narrative telling me there? 
you know, that if I chose the, chose the law route, um, and he law and chaos and neutral are defined in different ways than what we conventionally think, which is really cool. I think Matsuno did a great job. Matsuno and team yep. give credit to everybody, but that's that's how the branching happens, more or less. Okay. And so, can you think of examples in your own life where you have, looking back, like that one major decision that spawns off a bunch of other pieces that you have to think about, but it really was like that one linchpin point that that kind of sets off the chain reaction of events, because that's what it sounds like is going on in Tactics Ogre, is that you have that one major decision at Bama Musa, and then you have a bunch of other decisions that you make after that, but it really is because of that major major decision to you make so something for like the listeners a to kind of get to know you a little better too since you are you are a patron and we want to (laughs) we want to build you into the community but it'd just be great to tell us a little bit of a story just kind of related to decision making since we are trying to look at how we also make decisions in our own lives absolutely with this work oof yeah and not go too personal um (laughs) i think the the first few things that came to mind uh were the choices I made as a like younger person about kind of what I wanted my life to be or what I was interested in. Well, or did I want to follow things I was interested in or not, basically. I think the first major choice that came to mind that's similar to this one, although it wasn't, it didn't have, of course, the like, you know, um, moral gravitas of like, do I spare 5,000, you know, <laughs> poor workers or not in terms of it being in a revolution? Like, I'm not Lenin. Um, but it, it let be comparing what's going on in this game to what revolutionaries have had to go through is like really spot on, I would say, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, there's always going to be casualties. It's like which casualties do we, you know, use and why, more or less. Yeah. But that being said, um, when I was in college, I remember uh, I wanted to be a diplomat. And I was inspired by watching Lawrence of Arabia as a like when I was like 14 or so. Mm, yeah. Fell in love with that movie, and I decided to learn Arabic on my own. Uh, in part because I saw how the Somali American population has been treated, and East African population in the Twin Cities. I grew up in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to like solve conflict. Want to go out there, and. I had this kind of I had this dream pretty uncritically and I went to college and I learned more. I took modern Middle Eastern history and politics courses. I took an introduction to the Quran course which I fell in love with. I really focused on my Arabic skills and I started to read critical literature about you know the involvement of imperial powers in the Middle East and beyond the Islamicate world I would call it. And these critical literatures, most notably like Edward Said's Orientalism, but a few other people like Franz Fanon in particular, I'm a big fan of his writing, showed how the white savior complex or the like, you know, uh, pacify the Middle East conflict uh, complex are really inextricable from a lot of diplomatic work in the world. And I think that's like, we all know this now more so than we did in the 90s, perhaps, or the people who know it are more than than before. Right. And I had to make a decision, basically. Did I want to go down a public policy route and play the hero? And then perhaps in framing it in this way, although not, of course, one-to-one direct like comparison, but and like have the casualties, quote unquote, of knowing that I'm doing something really insincere? Or did I want to become a specialist and focus more on knowledge production and like kind of exploring the history and cultures and religions of the near and Middle East and beyond Islamicate world? And I really grappled with that decision. And in the end, I decided, like, I, I can't be a diplomat. It's just not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like, I don't want to be an area specialist in that way. I'd much rather work in the academy. Um, it is a little bit ironic that I'm not, like, a, uh, I'm an alt academic. I do academic work on the side. Um, but uh, that's kind of, like, one choice that I keep going back to, um, especially, like, you know, I've met with people who, uh, and I don't know who's going to really listen to this, but like I was thinking about doing more governmental work, um, moving to Washington, D.C. and surrounding areas and seeing, you know, what role there might be for me uh, much later in life. And then I went back to that decision. And I'm like, that's the reason why you didn't decide to go into it in the first place. It's just not my personality. And also um, 
from the like Den and Pavel perspective, you know, I wanted to go with my gut versus do uh, do the thing that I know would get the results that I wanted. Great. <laughs> well, and talking about her- her- heroism, and this is the kind of the main piece that I think yeah. is interesting when we're looking at how language is used in any kind of war-based RPG is that there's always a set of language that inspires people to act against another group of people and then that's that is tied up with various rituals to kind of get people excited about going into conflict and so what i want to be thinking about for a bit and you had used the word hero and like the white the the white savior in your own reflection (laughs) and looking at the problems of what that creates and how that creates just distrust because it's not really engaging the lives of the people on the ground. Yeah. So how do we think about heroism in the context of the tactics ogre? Because I think that's really, at some point, no matter what path you choose, you end up proclaiming yourself as the as the hero, but it looks different depending on which path you take. So get to, so touch touch on those pieces for us, I think. That'd be a really helpful discussion. And I told Adam before we started recording, I mean, you could write a like Cambridge companion to Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together. I mean, it's the story and the way the story is manifested. It's, I mean, very film-esque. And I think we forget that games, the people who make games, like the real humans behind this, like in the 80s and 90s, often went into film studies. And then they were like, well, there's like no future in film studies in Japan for me. I'll go into gaming. And they take that with them. And... You know, this is, it's almost analogous to watching, uh, like when I brought up Lawrence of Arabia, um, and the, the big critique of heroism there, um, and I guess no spoilers for Lawrence of Arabia, but heroism in Tactics Ogre is, is propped up, it's deconstructed, everybody's a hero, which means nobody's a hero, that's a big Matsuno thing in all of his games, uh, that I've played at least, um, and I think I've played all of them now that I think about it. Um, everybody has a reason for what they're doing and you, the, the player, the audience, know the reasons rather than like the reasons are hidden or you like have to sort of ascertain what the reasons could be. And so that makes a game where the moral ground is gray and neutral in a sense. So the, the dark knights from Lotus or the knights that come in from Lotus, they have reasons why they're there and they explain them and you get to read about them in the Warren Report. Um, the Bakram have their reasons for wanting to be on top and ruling. The the Galgastani have their reasons for pressing the Wallister. The Wallister have reasons. It's um, there isn't the like brute bad guy, objectively, excuse me, absolute evil uh, entity versus the good entity, um, and that's kind of what makes the game so. Uh, like really compelling to play because you want to find out all sides of the story and then really appreciate the gravitas of the choices that are made. Um, So in terms of, you know, I wrote a little bit about in my notes here, so I don't ramble too much, you know, what I really thought about heroism in this game. It's really hard to actually call anybody a superhero or a hero in this game as it would be in other games. So we have in Final Fantasy Tactics, like your main character, Ramza, and then a few other characters. Uh, my favorite, who's the old man, like Obi-Wan Kenobi guy who uses lightning magic and swords. Orlando. Yeah, Orlando's like so badass, right? But even the way we're talking about it, right? Yeah. You level up those characters. You make your main character like the dual-wielding ninja. I haven't played this for like 10 years, you can yep. probably tell, audience. But um, you, you become OP, yeah. You go in and then every battle's winnable and it's fine. And the grind of Tactics Ogre is like you have to use a team. Even the like ways to game the system and the trick is out there, spoiler, it's like invest in archers. <laughs> like yeah. their archers are OP. Um you still can't win a battle unless it's like uh you're working together as a team. It's it's it, I wouldn't say it takes the fun out of it. It just because the game is extremely fun and gratifying, but it just uh, sort of levels the playing field for everybody as this hero or as this icon. Like, you can't go out there Bayonetta style and just, like, decimate enemies and feel good about it. Because you're like, I'm, an objectively, I'm on an objectively good path and I'm defeating evil and that's, like, a great thing. Um, you're fighting against enemies who are, like, protecting their families and fighting for an ethnic, you know, for their political cause. 
that's just as valid as yours. And how does that make you feel? You feel a little weird, honestly. Um, oh, so, so I don't get a character like Ramsa that I can make a level 99 calculator and then <laughs> exactly. I, ca- I cast level 8 Quake at on least, every square. <laughs> at least not the first playthrough. I mean, so there is, and again, like typical Tactics Ogre style where it's just so over the top and deep. I mean, this is like reading Don Quixote, like 2,000-page novel or something. There's a The final dungeon is 110 to 150 levels, and that's the only way to get all of the endgame materials and items. I don't know if I'm going to play through it. I might watch YouTube videos of people playing through it. That's like... But, um, but like, by and large, the, the game doesn't equip you with that. It, it takes away your hero powers, and it almost humanizes the characters in that way. Um... As your main character, though, as Den and Pavel, you're both extremely powerful and then at times utterly powerless. So you're utterly powerless insofar as the knights come from Lotus and like raid and destroy everything around you. But you're extremely powerful because you eventually become the head of revolutionary armies that are sweeping across Valeria. Unlike in some games where you are at the front of every battle that you're winning, uh, there's some battles that you hear about between, for example, the Wallister and Galgastani that like happen to end in stalemate and it leaves you the perfect moment to strike at certain castles and win like very important tactical battles, right? Or strategic battles for a greater purpose. Mm. And that's like completely beyond your control. So talk about like removing the agency from the hero. Um, I'd say that like in the classical sense, the hero's journey is there because Denim comes to learn more about himself and your characters learn more about themselves throughout the conflict. But in the end, it's you finish, you finish the game and you're almost at square one because like, what do we do now? The conflict is ended. And again, no spoilers, but, um, and you reflect back on the choices you made. Did I make all the right choices? Am I really satisfied with this victory that we've won, but I made X and Y choice at Balmamusa um or like i lost these characters you can characters can come and go based on their approval of you which is important as well so keeping up their loyalty is like um, particularly in the neutral and chaos roots is really important um i think more or less i think i've said everything i wanted to say i'm gonna look through my notes really quick oh there's one scene that i think encapsulates uh i don't know the nuanced reinterpretations of heroism, particularly in gaming. I almost feel like there's like a meta commentary on heroism in gaming. And in that way, Matsuno is similar to the director of like the Drakengard Nier series, uh, Yoko Taro, who like really throws heroism out the window and really makes you think about what the, what the hell are you doing when you play games and thinking yourself as a hero and reflecting like in real life. That's why it's great to be a patron of this wonderful uh, project because this is like all we think about um there's a character uh who is a knight of lotus and his name is lancelot and lancelot is one of the first people you meet that teaches you how to fight it's kind of like leads the introduction for you in the game mm-hmm. um he's almost like a father figure in a weird way he comforts denim Denim's before a battle once, and he's like, it's like normal to be really scared. And he's like, I'm always scared before a battle, so you shouldn't be scared. Um, again, like fulfilling all of those tropes of the Obi-Wan Kenobi type of things. Um, he has really excellent equipment, and like you have him as a guest character, and he kicks ass. Um, but in the end, you, you find out that he is captured, and he's tortured, and you see the torture scene. And it's, it's really gr- uh, grim and brutal. And at least in the law route, you're able to find him and he's, he's in an asylum and he's looking over the water uh, outside on the ocean and he can't even recognize a protagonist. And there's this really beautiful scene. Lancelot's also a character from uh, Ogre Battle, March of the Black Queen. He's a hero that like is exiled at the very end. It's like this really interesting irony, but he can't even recognize a memento that his wife left him, this music box. That's like this like, huge part of his story um so this hero that's propped up as being someone who is so important and a kind of guide that might have like survived or if not like died a heroic death and other similar kinds of games is like reduced to the shell of a human being and you have to grapple with it 
Um, this is the person who, like, you know, um, kind of made Denim into who he was in terms of giving him an archetype to follow. Um, that always, that's, like, the scenes involving him struck me really personally. Uh, and I think that's a good way to encapsulate what the game has to say about heroism. And we could talk about all, there's tons of different characters and builds and how the gameplay reinforces this, but that's kind of the thing that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, and really what I find striking, because we, we, Parker and I play tons of games, (laughs) tons and tons of games. Our our, our WhatsApp conversations are full of like, I I just beat this game. Are you playing this game? Yep. Yep. And and, and so, but the questions we're always thinking about are really, how are the characters interacting with each other? What does it mean for world building? Because that's the main lesson of this Patreon project is that the world building that takes place in games comes from people that are talking about narratives inspired by real life events. So that these things are not happening on accident. These are not things that are just happenstance chance. Yeah. These are things that come from real reflection based on real life events. And they can teach us real things about how we can best be in the world. And so what is striking in this conversation is that I've often wondered in other types of literature and film about the loss of the pure hero. Dragon Quest XI (laughs) is really one of the few games that has a pure hero looking at it from that sense of the ultimate evil is this demonic dragon monster. Yeah, and the backstory for that monster isn't like as satisfying as some other characters. Yep, yep, and the backstory for the monster isn't really in in that case. But most games have this kind of hero-anti-hero in the sense of you make a particular set of choices based on the information that you have at a particular time. And it's not perfect information. It's not like the all-encompassing, the omniscient narration. Yes. And we've we've really pushed in several different forms of media that there are no, there are very few perfect heroes. Absolutely. And what do we think of that direction? And do we think that Tactics Ogre had something to do with that, particularly in the video game realm? I mean, thinking back to old games of the 80s, like the original Dragon Quest, Dragon Quest II, Final, <laughs> original Final Fantasy. Oh, yeah. um, but this is really one of the early games that has that thought process of we're not really heroes here. And it's not to the point where Yoko Taro is, is like, oh, you actually think you're the hero because of all the propaganda, but you actually are committing genocide. Yeah. Of entire other population. But it's similar. I mean, but yeah. it's but it's but it's similar. And so what do we think in terms of our own reflection of how do we build a disposition to think about our own choices so that they're not destructive of others? And how does Tactics Ogre make you participate in that reflection as you're thinking about the choices that you are making? Some heavy stuff, Adam, and that's, I guess, why I'm here, and I can only hope I do justice to those questions, but I think the, the lessons that I've gotten from at least a first playthrough, it's almost like the, the, the notion of wanting to be a hero, of feeling like being a hero absolves you of things, is a construct that we all hold up because it's almost like a survival tool for us. It's what can get us through difficult situations. It's what... I mean, in a propagandistic sense, it's like it's the psychological force that drives us to do the things that we do sometimes or not like like shying away from the heroic like I should have been here to stand up for this thing at this particular time. And now I feel guilty and I'm just not even going to try. That's something else that can affect people, all of us. Right. Navigating this, you know, the complexities of of life in the world. it really, this game helped me in my own journey to be a better person, I suppose, an ethical journey to like, uh, when I have those thoughts of, oh, I should be doing this for this reason, to be critical about that, to shy away from predetermined archetypes, um, because, you know, a predetermined archetype isn't you, you're a dynamic, uh, creature navigating things on the basis of the past, and, the future that you're facing right Right. um 
I think what I really appreciated about the narrative is that in the end there is peace and there's a feeling of like, oh, victory. And the epic boss fight is epic. It's 15 floors of, of and I, I mean, my, my team was like really well equipped and I, I did the work, I did the grinding, I did the like balancing, I did the right equipment and everything. And so it was like not too bad, but it's like 15 floors and then a boss fight that's a two-part boss fight. Um, and I've, I've played a lot of difficult boss fights before and this was like up there. Um, so you have this sense, like this euphoria upon winning, but then you think back to the casualties and the betrayals and the loss and it kind of, uh, it's, it forces you to think in context. It also forces you to be like, to be okay with making difficult decisions, knowing that you can't escape collateral and often difficult decision-making comes down to what is the collateral going to be? Right. Which is, um, I mean, honestly, it's it's a little bit bleak, but it's like, it's kind of the human condition in a sense. Um, you know, whatever goal you're striving for, it's important not to lose sight of what this collateral is going to be on yourself, on others, in the world, what impact you're going to have, whether intentional or unintentional, and trying to prepare for that. Yeah. Um, I also think the last thing I'll, I'll say in terms of the major lessons that I think that this game is trying to bring to light or problematize, however way you want to put it, because I don't think this game is pushing a particular agenda. Like it isn't, there really isn't an anti-war agenda, I think, because in the end, uh, it's almost as if Matsuno is saying conflict is going to happen. It might need to happen. Because we do have differences of opinion, even despite being like the same people, <laughs> like the Wallister and Galgasani are by and large the same people. Mm. They speak the same language, have the same religion, and yet they still come to conflict, right? But it's about what you do to minimize and to have the conflict go as smoothly as possible. It's paradoxical, right? Even saying it, we, we feel, you know, conflicted ourselves, but... In, in the context of this conflict, it's important, I think, from the game's perspective, to know that you do have control over your impact to a degree. You have control over your choices to a degree, of the virtues you tend to like uphold and cultivate, of the sacrifices you can make of yourself or others. And those choices really matter. Yeah. Reinforces that. At least it did to me. Okay. Um, so when you roleplay this, because we go into a fantasy world... And it's objective to us. It's not subjective. And then bring it back to the subjective. It, it kind of brings more weight to everything in your life. That's how I felt. Right. Well, and in terms of leadership development, because part of the project here at Phenomena Gaming is to empower gamers to be able to take leadership roles and understand that responsibility for areas they want to make social change in their own lives. And leadership is often a very bleak road it's not a simple road and it's not a situation where you get to play the hero you often feel helpless in a lot of situations and i think as i'm thinking about the question that i had asked you as i'm thinking about my own response to it there's really a couple things to that come to mind in terms of what i try to do in terms of how do i take responsibility for the leadership roles i have is that one I try very hard in my own reflection time to think about what is, what would my life be without the imagery that I have, whether from mm. society, whether from religion, whether from the own personal beliefs I've developed as yes. a, even as a result in those cultures and that in theological terms, we would call this a God without idolatry kind mm. of, kind of prayer and reflection for a gaming audience we can kind of bring this into the more inclusive what are the beliefs and values that we hold dear why do we hold them but also what would it be even if we didn't have those could we still be a good person to reflect on how to cause that least amount of emotional wake Mm. a lot of a lot of positive psychology and the development of people's strengths is really looking at the question of what is my emotional wake in the context of other people that's well said and 
and it's like a like a like a lake you create you, th- you skip a rock and you create a little wake that comes out and so how do we create the gentle wakes mm-hmm. that provide a welcoming presence for people to engage their gifts in 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 the context of helping the world as best yeah. as they can but how do we also try to minimize the collateral damage and that's really a major challenge when yes. we're thinking about video games and particularly if thinking about tactics ogre when we get into the chaos route if we sla- if we slaughter 5000 people spoiler you got the spoiler i, I got, didn't you do got it the, you got the, yeah, yeah it's 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 my spoiler and he hasn't even played the game wow anyway yeah <laughs> I, I i read i prep i prep for my interviews excellent That's awesome. but but it's yeah but when you're making Oh, actually, chaos is. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's, it's, it's the opposite. I got tricked. Okay, so we can maybe we, delete this. Part no, no, this is. It's actually humorous. We need a little humor on the show that's too. Fine. But that's yeah, all good. But I think the key, <laughs> the key piece I want to reflect on in terms of the choices we make is that can the choices we make have a low emotional wake in terms of providing peace and stability while also being realistic of the challenges of conflict yes um one example being nonviolent communication it's a resource i love Excellent. but they also it's an interesting caveat of what do you do in communication when somebody actually is being actively hurt by certain types of language and where does protective force come in mm. and in my own in my own reflection there is a point where beliefs hurt people especially given the interest in ritual and language that I developed in graduate school and carried on mm. into my into my own work now is that how do we develop ritual and language which is inclusive and helpful for people and in yeah. gaming we've got a great opportunity to do that and I think but we just again have to be honest about what heroism is and what leadership is and leadership is not always making a cozy choice it's sometimes making a choice that creates a level of discomfort but we have to have the disposition as a leader to sit with people in that discomfort i think one thing that i'm resonating with that you've said is finding ways to be inclusive and almost it's almost gets down to like the empathy sympathy argument and how beneficial that is for everybody if everybody was like that then it would just make the burden of this crazy world that much easier right um i do like in this game a lot that there are no good guys and bad guys which is just it's a big statement to make in a because in, in to have a game that's enjoyable and one of the reasons why we play this right i've been really critical this game forces you to be critical about like why the hell do i like video games so much spend so much money and time and uh, a part of it's like it's an enjoyable thing, right? It stimulates things in our brain that make us feel good. Yeah. Um, but if you're feeling good about like the massacre at Balma Musa, and you're like, oh, but I'm playing it to see the story, you're like, well, what the hell, right? Like yeah. it forces you to to have the kind of self criticality, but empathy with others as well. Um, the definition of the law neutral chaos routes comes to mind here. Law is for this game is respecting the order that exists in society. Mm. neutrality is described as that which seeks to achieve balance Mm. and chaos is that which values freedom above all else Mm. so even those framing it's not like good neutral and evil right no and you're not you're just using synonyms like all three are valid responses to something like the crisis of the war that's described in valeria yeah the wallister have just as like for them not to rise up and to sort of just accept Golgastani domination would lead to their their genocide. Yeah. So they're justified in fighting back in a certain sense. The argument is really hard for them to just turn the other cheek when it's like facing annihilation. Yeah. At the same time, you know, in order to be able to gain the, the independence they seek, um, they've had to stoop to some things they wouldn't do so otherwise. Um. Yeah, there's there's so much that this game can teach. I would say. Yeah. Oh, oh so it it actually sounds like the law and neutral chaos route is more akin to a D and D definition. Yeah, which of, is interesting. Of law of lawful neutral or 
chaotic in terms of like disposition so i think that's really because because then yeah. that, could, that could be good evil or neutral with those specific dispositions but i'm one of the few gamers that like didn't have much of a D background yep. so it's um it's interesting to like learn more about the lore and i'm sure i'll get into it at some point in my life yeah um but uh that would make so much more sense that it's describing the the disposition of things versus you know did you choose the lawful route just because to preserve the law and order that comes from it. Yeah. Well, and it's For great. Example. And it's great that in our discussion, we learned a little bit more about what could possibly be going on in this game. It's great when games have deep amounts of lore for us to discuss. We will have plenty more opportunities on the Phenomena Gaming Podcast to discuss various games. If you're interested in hosting a guest episode with me, Please subscribe at the $10 a month Patreon tier. You will be able to guest host and pick your favorite game, and we'll have an intense discussion on it like this one. I am thankful for Patreon for Parker being my patron because this has been a great journey, even though it's been a little slow to get off the ground. But I do work a full-time job outside of this, and it is a job where it is in service to people. So at some some sometimes the energy to do more service just hasn't been there but i'm hoping that will continue into the future that we'll have some more energy we'll get some more content out for you all because you're as listeners as twitter followers that's been great for, for me to interact with you all uh the patreon page is phenomena gaming um we will have links in the bio when we post this online the twitter you can always find me on twitter i'm at what could being be it is what could being B with the letter B and not the full word B E because there's just not enough characters on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and if you want to ask questions of us on the show, you can feel free to email, email or use Twitter. Those links will be in my bio as well. Thank you all for listening today to the Phenomena Gaming Podcast, a podcast about gaming and living.